Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Western Pennsylvania Game Changers podcast, where we talk about charities that are doing great things in Western Pennsylvania and beyond, and how we as volunteers can help them. I'm Chris Hoke, former defensive lineman for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Tonight, I am joined by my great co-hosts, Tim Campbell and Lisa Mitchell. How are you both doing tonight? Great. Absolutely fine. That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) During this episode, we're going to talk about several great volunteer opportunities. You can learn more about these opportunities by going to either the Just Serve website or the Just Serve app. The website is www.justserve.org. The podcast is available for free from Apple's App Store or Google Play. Just Serve is a free service provided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My co-hosts and I are members of that church, but you don't need to be to use Just Serve. In addition, we now have a Facebook page where you'll find action photos from previous episode recordings and receive updates about new episodes. You can also share ideas for future episodes that you'd like us to discuss. And today, we are excited to be joined by Megan Anderson, the Executive Director of Gallagher Hospice. Gallagher Hospice provides care for patients who have been diagnosed with six months or less to live. And we're excited to be speaking with her here shortly. But first, we'll go to Tim. This past month, Tim has met with the Red Cross and he wants to share with us some of the things that he learned. Sure, Chris. You know, this, last year, even again this year as well, we had terrible, terrible problems, like a lot of flooding. Yeah. Um, but there have been a number of fires, a lot of other, other natural disasters that took place. In fact, where I'm from in Bethel Park, we had 400 homes alone that had significant flooding, and probably more than twice that number weren't even reported. So a lot of our communities have, have really took a big hit, and we're still seeing a lot of flooding with it. American Red Cross, they, they, they do incredible work. They had a formidable response to a lot of the needs in our area, but even their resources are stretched a little bit thin sometimes. Um, in acquiring, training, keeping active volunteers, that, that's a big issue. And as you know, American Red Cross is volunteer-based. Um, very involved. Very involved. There has been some concern with the increased floodings and shootings, fires that the ARC is, um, American Red Cross is thinking of restructuring their, their teams. Now, historically, the American Red Cross took all their teams and, and built shelter teams around faith communities, congregations, synagogues, local churches, and sometimes schools and community centers as, as shelters. The trouble was, a lot of people want to serve just within their congregations, just within their, their faith communities. And often they weren't willing to itinerate or go to other other locations or other outside where their particular very far, right? right where their particular congregation was so i this past week on thursday i met with the american red cross disaster shelter team leadership and um the Red Cross is considering establishing regional teams. So instead of there being like a particular church, a particular congregation or synagogue or other faith community, sure. they would do it regionally, like a South Hills team, a Central Pittsburgh team, uh-huh. um, Monongahela Valley, you know, a, a team there, North Hills. So what's the benefit of doing that? Well, by doing that, if you can get uh, members in a uh, geographic distribution, a community who yeah. are interested in doing that, they'd be more willing to serve within that community okay. rather than a small, more insular lo- yeah. little location. So, I mean, obviously, this is a trans-community effort. It uh-huh. really transcends, like, the borders and involves all the communities. And Red Cross is looking for folks who'd be willing to go ahead and step up and help other than, other, other neighbors, not necessarily in their immediate neighborhood, but maybe in other communities in, Pethel, in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, so there are a lot of emergencies right now, a lot of uh, things that are caused by the weather. 
you know, we have a lot of these microbursts that are happening right now, a lot of heavy rain that's causing flooding. And I can only imagine the Red Cross is stretched thin. Yeah, spot on. Um, this past, for instance, this past weekend, there was a fire in um, in Oakland. Mm -hmm. 74 people had to be relocated, wow. set up a, a shelter rather quickly to accommodate 30 families, you know, 30 uh, individuals. So where do they put them, Tim? Where do they That go? was at the David Lawrence Convention Center. Right there on the floor. Bingo. Yeah, we've had we've had shelters there a couple of times. It's been pretty impressive to watch. It's 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 elegant. It's and typically, how long do they stay there at um, the Lawrence Center? It, it, it Center? depends. You know, Red Cross is pretty quick at, at getting folks um, distributed into like hotels uh -huh. or among family members, things like that. But um, occasionally, it might take a little bit longer, especially if, if it's a larger geographic area that's sure. affected. That's God's work in my mind, really, to be helping those in need those who are in just total dire straits due to circumstances they have no control of. And it's a very, very vulnerable population. And all yeah. of us potentially could be at risk for that at one time or another Absolutely. in our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so uh, any of you that are listening and you feel that desire or, or need to go out and serve and help those who are going through uh, tough times and struggles in their lives to, because of things that they haven't done, right? And they have natural disasters. Um, please reach out to the Red Cross and, and help any way you can. So now I'd like to bring on our special guest, and Megan Anderson from Gallagher Hospice. She is the executive director, and we are excited to have her tonight. Welcome on, Megan. It is a privilege to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all. Absolutely. I know you're super excited. I wish that everybody can see just the big smile on <laughs> Megan's face and the excitement that she has for Gallagher Hospice and to be here tonight. And, and Megan, tell us a little bit about Gallagher Hospice. I would be happy to. So, Chris, Gallagher Hospice is relatively a young hospice. Uh -huh. We have uh, been around for three short years. However, the idea for Gallagher Hospice was in the works long before uh -huh. the actual organization came about. So, Diane Cars, who was the owner and founder of Gallagher Home Health, <clears throat> and her son, Ben, who's the president, have been operating Gallagher Home Health now for about 14 years. And one of the things they thought was sort of missing was that next piece of continuum of care. They also have private duty caregivers, but when it came time for end of life, they would refer to other hospices. So it was something they had been thinking about for quite some time. And then shortly after Diane had lost her husband uh, to uh, cancer, she really felt that calling. She really wanted to be able to provide hospice yeah. with uh, Gallagher services. And so they started some conversations. They had talked to people like Dr. Tim Campbell here <laughs> and, um, and then Dr. Dan Erlinger, who uh -huh. also had had uh, previous hospice and wanted to provide a community-based hospice program. And so born and bred then was Gallagher Hospice about three years ago. So we are proud to be serving what started just in the Bridgeville area and South Hills of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Now we are serving folks in the Beaver area, the Monroeville area, and Allegheny and Washington that, County. That growth is wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this question. A lot of times we hear hospice, and for some of our listeners that don't completely understand what a hospice is, what is a hospice and what does it do? Most people hear the word hospice and they are terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Don't say the word hospice mm -hmm. it really most people are afraid of it if they don't know what it is they assume it means someone is dying right now today wow. tomorrow um, and hospice really was a program that was it was born in the early 1980s actually even before that it was a volunteer movement it was uh, a nurse turned social worker turned physician who said there's got to be a better way to help care for people at the end of life mm -hmm. 
And so this movement was started, this volunteer movement to provide holistic end-of-life care. So it was physical, emotional, spiritual support mm -hmm. for people at the end of life. And while it was born and bred a volunteer movement, eventually it took hold, and then it became something that insurance companies were looking at, Medicare in particular. It became a Medicare benefit in the early 1980s, 1983. So this is a program that is for people who have a life-limiting illness. So what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, given someone's uh, prognosis, if a, a physician thinks that your life expectancy is six months or less mm -hmm. if the disease were to run its normal course. Okay. That's the first thing that makes someone yeah. eligible, if okay. you will, for hospice. And then the second piece of that is that they're no longer seeking curative or aggressive treatment. Yeah. It is a program that is designed for comfort and, okay. and maintaining people's quality of so life. So there are no longer medical remedies for the illness they have. Right. Or they, they've either exhausted all curative options or the risks and harm of those curative mm -hmm. treatments now outweigh the good. So they're no longer wanting to go back and forth yeah. to the hospital, but rather spend time, uh, good quality time, surrounded by loved ones in the comfort of their own home. Mm -hmm. And we define home wherever they define, wherever home. They define home. So okay. that might be their own home and house, might be an uh, independent retirement apartment building might be an assisted living, might be a skilled nursing facility. Yeah. So we provide hospice wherever a patient calls home. Now, Megan, you mentioned six months. That's kind of a, sometimes a person's crystal ball is real cloudy as far as like a person living six months or not. It's kind of shooting from the hip, isn't it, sometimes? Well, except for we have fine physicians like <laughs> Dr. Tim Campbell here. who's No physician can absolutely determine a prognosis of six months or less. However, each disease has a trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so based on some medical eligibility criteria, the physicians take a look at their illness and should it run their normal course, at that point in time, they're thinking that prognosis is six months or less. It does not mean that if someone does not die in six months that they are no longer eligible for hospice services. Sure. And really, Medicare would not want to penalize a physician who absolutely was doing their best to uh, determine someone's prognosis because things can, can change. Things and, happen. And things happen. And, yep. and we're grateful when someone stabilizes and their I'm illness sure the plateaus and, and perhaps we, we can step out. Mm -hmm. and come back in at a later time. Mm -hmm. No harm, no foul. It's important to mention also that um, it's not one physician who determines this. Yep. The Medicare guidelines are that two physicians have to okay. get and determine that a person is less than has six months. Has to be months. confirmed by another doctor. And, and what's the magic of six months? Well, you know, there's, like, as Megan mentioned, a lot of guidelines that suggest if a person will live at least that period of time. The average life expectancy on hospice is 71 days on outpatient hospice. In a hospital, if a person is like brought on hospice urgently, um, it's about two and a half days. That's it. Yeah, so what that really means is we aren't tapping in to the, the full benefit, right? Uh -huh. Because most people think hospice and they wait until folks are actively dying. And what Tim's referring to is nationwide. We're only People are all in service for 71 days. And certainly we can do a lot of good. And we do do a lot of good yeah. in whatever time frame we have with folks. But in order to really improve people's quality of life, get to know what's a good day, mm -hmm. what's a bad day. How can we make you have as many good days for as long as you possibly can? The earlier we do that, the better. Yeah. And most people end up saying, I wish we had done it sooner.
If I had a dime for every time a family says, we had no idea what you would do for us, I wish we had done it sooner. Yeah. Um, one of the things I read about Gallagher Hospice was that you talked about, you know, the moments of everybody's life and how important that is, that you wanted their end of life to have those moments as well. And so I think what you were saying goes along with that very much so. It is such a privilege, right? I like to talk about what, these meaningful moments in life. And we spend a lot of time, for example, getting excited about when someone is having a new baby and ushering them into this world. What a gift that is, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then this person lives a really full, incredible, rich life. And for some reason, we don't spend as much time thinking about how we're going to usher them out. Yeah. And so we find it quite a privilege to journey with patients and families at that intimate time. Whatever we can do to make each day better, even though we can't change the prognosis and maybe we can't change the fact that we are all mortal and we're all going to die, yeah. we can impact all those days leading up to that. Sure. There, there's a lot of things in life you get a do-over with. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things there is no do-over. You know, you, you really want to do the best job you possibly can mm -hmm. in this valuable compressed time because there is, there's, there is no do-over. You do the best you can now, get it right, you know, in this, in this intimate, sacred time for these people. What I see here, Megan, is I see two aspects, right? You have the care and support for the one who was in the final days of his or her life. And then you also have the care and support of the family. Absolutely. And it's, it's, like you said just a minute ago, you said that the families would say, well, I don't know why we didn't start doing this sooner. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful organization because what you're doing is you're providing care for everybody. And not only just that's the one who's at the end of his days or her days, but you're really helping those who are going through that grieving process, you know, the pre-grieving -pre -pre process. Talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. And it's everything from helping them physically, emotionally, spiritually, yeah. all of the above, right? So for, for uh, families who are providing care, and they are the primary caregiver, mm -hmm. we are a supplement to them. Yeah. Our role is to help walk them through that, to help guide them. Um, but we are every bit as much caring for the caregiver mm -hmm. as we are for the patient who's dying. Absolutely. Because most of us have never been through this before. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you have, but it certainly is never the same uh, experience twice. If you've lost someone and cared for someone who's dying, it's never exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so what to expect and how do we do that? Our role is to help walk them through that. Mm -hmm. We are going to anticipate what their needs might be. We are going to educate them mm -hmm. on what's going to happen and how we can help them manage that. And we are going to provide some emotional support, some reassurance. We also provide the anticipatory grief yeah. and, bere and then bereavement. We follow families for 13 months after that. After? Has died. Wow. wow. That's wonderful. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. As, for me, it'd be difficult if I was intimately involved like you are with Gallagher Hospice not to get attached to some of these families. I mean, it's got to be difficult on you. I will tell you, some of our nurses, it certainly is. Uh, and one of the things that I find such a privilege is each person is so unique and they teach us way more than we teach them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we get this gift of how they lived their life, how they handled their end of life and what they did. And that certainly leaves a profound impact yeah. and you hold that and you carry that with you. And then maybe you take a piece of that for the next family you're dealing with at the same time, they're never the same. And so yeah. you want to make sure you're really looking at the unique individualized experience that folks are having. Yeah. 
because my loss will never be the same as your loss. Right. Um, Every loss is different, isn't it? It is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. depending on life circumstances, how that relationship was throughout the years. I mean, everything is different for these, these families and these individuals. Um, and to your point, people have said, I don't know how you do what you do. And I'm sure yeah. Tim can speak as to how do you work with people who are dying every day? And I will tell you, and I think our staff would say the same thing, which is it is not depressing. It can often be sad. And there are moments you sit with the family, and if you aren't moved by their grief, then you're in the wrong line yeah. of work. And you, you sit with some of that sadness. There are moments that can be, and there are moments that are just so profound that, and so humbling that you feel like it is nothing but a gift. And, yeah. and so you really, that re-energizes yeah. you for that next person who yeah. may be dying. So I'm going to get a little personal here, right? You mm -hmm. mentioned as we were getting to know each other pre-podcast that you lost your father in the last year so how has your experience and your involvement in the Gallagher hospice helped you go through that process and go through the grieving process yeah I will tell you I don't know how I could have done it without being in the space I was with the mm -hmm. folks at Gallagher because there was no place that was more supportive understanding um, I couldn't have asked for anything more yeah it also was really reassuring having seen and the things that we have with end of life uh, that my family knew pretty clearly what my father's wishes were. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is the gift um, my dad gave us, yeah. um, which was an advanced directive. So we knew. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you briefly, his experience was that um, he... Uh, fell down the stairs and had a large uh, bleed, brain bleed. So, and he he never did wake up or recover. So his end of life experience was was several days in the hospital, okay. and then he died. But we would have been faced with some of those decisions, sure. right? The same decisions that families that we talk with are faced with. And the gift that he gave us was very clearly knowing what he would have wanted. And so it wasn't our decision. Instead, we were honoring his decisions and able to carry that out uh, in a uh, unified way, uh, very, very supported by my mom, his wife, who wanted to carry out his wishes and the, the six, his six children. And so it was really a beautiful experience. Yeah. We were able to all be with him, to have the uh, priest uh, around the bedside, saying some of my father's favorite prayers with all of his wonderful it's amazing 20 some grandchildren yeah. and to be able to usher him out in yeah. a way that i know he would have felt yeah. honored almost like a celebration yeah. it was a celebration yeah. it, and as difficult as that loss was uh, i take great peace in knowing that his end of life experience was as peaceful and calm as, yeah. as it could have been. Thank you for sharing some of those tender, uh, you know, just very touching moments. Something you said in there um, kind of prompted another thought. You talked about how he had everything prepared. You knew exactly what he wanted at the end of his life. And talk to us a little about the services that you offer at Gallagher Hospice, because I have to imagine that some families at the end of life don't have all that preparation. They don't have all those details 
um, decided and put together. So talk about some of the services that you offer, yeah. including that one. Yep. Most families don't because it's like until you're in it, yeah. you don't didn't know. think to know yeah. and you don't know. Or they don't feel comfortable. Or they don't feel comfortable. Sure. So we really, I'll, I'll just give you an overview of the services and each person's role in helping folks with this. So the overall services that Gallagher Hospice provides, of course, it's a medical service, mm -hmm. but again, it's interdisciplinary. So it's physical, it's uh, psychosocial, it's emotional. So it's led by a physician. So we have our hospice medical directors like Dr. Campbell. Um, we have RNs on the team. We have nurse practitioners on the team who often see folks. We have uh, certified nurses' aides or home health aides mm -hmm. that do things like bathing, showering, personal care. We have social workers on the team who are helping with things like um, maybe it's financial concerns, maybe it's completing an advanced directive, mm -hmm. maybe it's getting a power of attorney form notarized, maybe it's connecting them with an elder law attorney so they can do some estate planning and some will planning. Maybe they're just sitting in the home having a cup of tea and supporting the caregiver. Sure. We have volunteers who come into the home who can sit with patients and families, maybe give the caregiver a break. Maybe they go into the nursing home and they visit, read, pray, whatever that patient yeah. might like. Uh, we also have a bereavement counselor. Sometimes she is working with families prior to someone dying. Um, if there's a, a lot of concern there. Or sometimes she's simply working with families after a person has died for about yeah. 13 months. And we have a spiritual care counselor. Yeah. All of these people make up the services that are available to families. And some families say, whoa, I'm not sure I'm going to need all of you. And that's fine, too. Yeah. They don't have to have all of us. They do have to have the nurse come into the home at least, a minimum once every two weeks. Normally we're in there a lot more than that. Yeah. They have to have the nurse. That's the only discipline they have to have. Um, but all these other services are available to them. That's wonderful. And uh, with all these services that you offer, all these individuals that participate, they stand on some founding principles, some core values that you have at Gallagher Hospice. Can you share with us some of those uh, some of those core values that you have? I am glad you asked about us uh, about that. Certainly, our first and foremost, uh, our big value is respect and dignity. Sure. But when when Gallagher was founded, Di Diane felt pretty strongly that we would we would take into account some values that they they put down. It was founded a lot of her care on her mother who had died, whose name was Iva. Mm -hmm. So they developed um, a little phrase for all of us staff called Iva Care, and really. In those phrases, I'll just give you some of the snippets, but one of the things for I, for Iva, is that we're going to identify and deliver things that will, what will make today mm -hmm. better for this family. When I leave here today, what's the one thing I could do that can make your today better? Yeah. So all of our staff goes into and out of the patient's home with that idea in mm -hmm. mind. Um, we value and respect our patients, and we assess, but we don't intrude. So we're going to assess and see what we think someone needs but our assessment may not be what you really feel you need, so we won't intrude on that. We will we will try to follow that joint plan of care, which mm -hmm. the family is every bit as responsible for the plan of care that yeah. we're developing at end of life. Um, we deliver our care with compassion. We advocate for folks. We respond quickly, and and we embrace the end of life with them. That's wonderful. Um, 
I'd love to hear more a little bit about Iva. I read about it on your website, but talk to our listeners a little bit more about her. Yeah, so Iva awesome. was was Diane's mom and and just a really unique role model. I never had the privilege of meeting her, but I've heard many, many stories. I did. She See, was my patient. Uh-huh. Really? And I took care of her towards the end of her life. And well well before as well, but what an incredible lady. This lady she was uh, spit and fire and vinegar, you know, everything you can check his dick out, you know, but what a, what a character and what a wonderful, wonderful person. And what a great inspiration for, for the, um, you know, for, for the, the, the hospice. It was really born out of love. One other thing um, Megan mentioned as well, and I thought that this has always been kind of close to my heart as well, because my mom and dad both died on hospice. And I thought that was one of the best gifts we could give them at the end of their life, what we could do to ease their transition, mm-hmm. help them out. And always comes to mind with me is one of the fellows who taught me hospice many, many, many years ago. He said, Tim, to die without hospice is like having surgery without anesthesia. It's that important. Wow. It's yeah. that important. You know, so I've always kind of kept that as you know, close to my heartstrings. Okay, why am I doing in this first place? In the first place, because this is that really un- impresses upon you, Tim, how important it is. This is unrecoverable yeah. time. I couldn't go through surgery without anesthesia. <laughs> no, right. no, couldn't do that. So, man, that that impresses upon you how important it is. Uh, Megan, you know, um, just serve the app, the website. It's a it's a volunteer opportunity for a clearinghouse, so to speak. And you'd mentioned volunteers. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, first of all, what type of volunteers would Gallup be interested in? Um, why would a person want to volunteer? Yeah. Can you can you shed yeah. some insight on that? Absolutely. We have great many volunteer opportunities, and we have a wide variety of people who are interested in why. Certainly, usually, it takes just a compassionate heart. But we have volunteers who do both indirect care, meaning they might work in the office doing clerical things. Um, And then we have volunteers who are patient volunteers. We call direct care volunteers. And they're really different, right? So we have, for example, a couple retired nurses, one who loves to be at the bedside because she missed that. She wants to sit with patients and she loves that. And another retired RN who says, "Mm -mm, I didn't do that kind of nursing. That's not for me, but I know how hard your nurses work, and I'll do whatever you need me to do in the office to help them out. So she answers phones for us. She does some (laughs) clerical things. She does not want to do patient care, right? So we have a little bit of both. So we have some folks who have, you know, one hour a week to give us, and we have some folks who have five to ten hours a week to give us. We'll, We'll take any of that. So our indirect volunteers do office work. Sometimes it's computer work, data entry. Sometimes it's creating um, folders for patients and families, putting together things at different points in time in the year, helping with our memorial service, things like that. Or we have direct care volunteers, like Mm -hmm. I said, who would go and sit at bedside. Sometimes it's just to keep a patient company, because sometimes we have patients who may no longer be responsive or interacting, but just the gift of being present yeah. for someone is really valuable. And that could give a family member a, a break. You know, the wife who's a caregiver who can't even, doesn't feel comfortable going out to the grocery store to leave her husband sure, alone. Yeah. That volunteer can just go give her that time to go to the grocery store, go get her hair and That's done. extremely important it's to that spouse. So they need that time away for they their emotional do. health. They do. This is really, caregiving is really hard yeah. work. So we have volunteers who do that. We have our volunteer coordinator. Um, we have a pet therapy dog. 
We have another volunteer who's going to be doing that. So they take the dog around for some mm-hmm. pet therapy to places. We most recently uh, have been gifted by some beautiful singers, the Threshold Choir who, of the South Hills, who will sing at the bedside of folks who are dying. That's and it's a really just a beautiful gift of they, they harmonize at mm-hmm. folks' bedside. So we have a wide range of volunteers and a wide range of ages. We've got some young folks in their 20s who want to give back. And we have some older folks, like I said, who are retired. We have one gentleman who really, um, he's, we have several amazing volunteers. But just this week, I was reminded of how grateful I am to the volunteers because I got a survey back from our family Uh member who said, everyone was so compassionate. We couldn't have done it without you. And especially Dan, who came in red and sat at my mom's bedside. Well, Dan was our volunteer. Yeah. So, and we have another volunteer um, who, when some folks were off on vacation, he just stepped up and he covered multiple patients in a week. And really, those things, we couldn't do it without Mm -hmm. them. Not only do we just love the gift, we are also required by Medicare to have a certain amount of volunteer hours. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask that. So you you have all these volunteers, and you talk about all these individuals who are volunteering and uh, choirs and and so forth. Um, Sometimes our listeners might think, do I need to have special training in order to be a part of the, the volunteering at the hospice? Is there some special training that needs to take place before they can help? Great question. And the answer is yes and no. Okay. Right? Well, it will take depending on what they're going to do. Depending on what they're going to do, right? Okay. So, but we do give training. Yep. At a minimum, we have orientation to our hospice services and orientation to the services we provide and a certain amount of training, whether you're going to be a volunteer in the office or in the patient's home. Okay. Those two trainings might look a little bit different sure. if you're going to do patient care. So we do go through some training with what to expect at end of life, signs and symptoms yeah. of an impending death, what you do in the home, when to notify the nurse for changes. Yeah. There's a, a certain So that training takes place with you guys. You don't have to have that does. training before. You don't have to have it before. Our volunteer coordinator is wonderful, and she will do individual trainings okay. one-on-one. She will do some group trainings yeah. when we have more than one volunteer. And so they will spend um, some time wonderful. at the office doing that. Wonderful. Okay, so what characteristics do you look for in someone that would like to volunteer? Compassion. A truly an open heart. Really, it is it is the gift of your presence when yeah. we're with other people. And, and in the office, certainly that too, because you are surrounded right. by everything that's going on out in people's homes, or we say in the field, if you will, in the office. And they really help, um, if you will, stabilize us and keep us going yeah mm-hmm. i've always felt this is more of instead of high tech when i'm wearing my internal medicine hat it's like i'm wearing cat scans and mris and bone scans and all these other you know high yield very invasive sometimes procedures and tests but instead of it being high tech now it's going to high touch so it like dovetails that. nicely into what um, what Megan's saying. This is really kind of maybe taking medicine back sometimes about 50 years, the way it should be done, the art in medicine rather than the science of medicine yeah. and touching. Because obviously there's things that sometimes we can't cure, but we can make you feel better. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. So with these volunteering opportunities, I have to assume that you can find them on justserve.org. Is that where we can find these opportunities? Absolutely. Great. Go right on to justserve.org, and they will link us to our website, gallagherhospice.com. Our volunteer coordinator will walk you through the steps and 
do whatever we need to do because we'd love to have you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you have a Facebook page as well? We do have a Facebook page. That okay. is Gallagher Hospice uh, and Gallagher Home Health Services both have, have a Facebook page, so you can find us there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you go to our new Facebook page for the Western Pennsylvania Game Changers, we will have a link that can take you right to Gallagher Hospice. So please go to the Facebook page and you will find that there. So if I don't live within the area that um, Gallagher typically sees patients, am I still available to volunteer? Absolutely. Any hospice volunteer is a wonderful volunteer. There are a great many hospices in West, Western Pennsylvania who are doing really great work. So you can go to, um, even if you Googled hospice and your zip code, yeah. different hospices would show up. Or certainly if you called Gallagher Hospice, we could direct you to several others that are in your area. Great. Megan, it's been a wonderful, wonderful evening. We, it's just been an honor to be here with you. And just this has been a very special podcast. Um, some very tender, I think, moments shared. Um, this is something that's very near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. Well, I can't thank you enough because hospice is a word that most people are really afraid of and they don't know it. So when they don't hear the ins and outs and don't really know what the program has to offer, yeah. it sounds really scary. And the reality of it is it's not at all. We're there to take the scare away and really help people uh, at that really critical time in life. Yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. Thank you. And, and we want to thank our listeners for being with us on this podcast. It's a, it's a great podcast. We talk about how we could serve and lift others, especially on this podcast. And we want to just invite you to go to www.justserve.org or go to the Just Serve app to look for the opportunities to volunteer with the Gallagher Hospice and other uh, service opportunities throughout the Western Pennsylvania area. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. And make sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode comes out. And until next time, roll up your sleeves and let's go to work.